Greetings to the Bible class at St. Pat's. This is your Bible teacher from his home office. I'm continuing my lecture series for the spring quarter. This will be the second lecture that I've put online, and tonight we'll begin our journey through Paul's letter to the Galatians. We'll spend some time, of course, in the first couple of chapters. Additionally, we'll cross-reference quite frequently events that were recorded by the companion of Paul, Luke, in the book of Acts. And we'll see the dovetailing between the historical narration of the first missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas, and then having founded so many churches in the region of Galatia, we'll come to understand Paul has to address a specific concern about the influence of those from the circumcision party that have infiltrated the churches in his absence. But that's what lies ahead. Remember that these recordings, these teachings, these lectures will last about 50 minutes at maximum. That's the amount of time I'm accorded on this particular platform. So rather than the regular hour and a half, you can plan your listening time accordingly. And I will, as usual, be reading and commenting uh, from the letter of Paul to the Galatians as I make my way through the text. So having said that, let's begin as we do each week with a word of prayer. Gracious Father, we thank you for bringing us together online so that we can read and study your word. Please open our minds and our hearts to what you have to say, that in better understanding you, we may come to love you more deeply. God our Father, you sent your Son into the world to be its true light. Pour out the Holy Spirit he promised us to sow truth in our hearts and awaken in us obedience to the faith. May we all be born again to new life and enter the fellowship of your one holy people. And grant this through the Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Well, as we are all aware... This will be the way that uh, I will be able to continue my teaching, at least until the end of the month, when we hope and pray that our securing ourselves at home uh, edict will be lifted, and perhaps then we can look forward to greeting one another at St. Pat's in our familiar hall. Uh, again, to date, all is well in my family. Uh, everyone remains gainfully employed, although a couple of my kids have taken a percentage of decrease in salary as a result of the COVID-19 uh, rise in our land. But uh, the most needed prayers are for, of course, my two oldest daughters, who are not only working as full-time Catholic school religious educators and having to uh, video and present lectures uh, through Zoom, but also are required to now homeschool their children who will not be going back to school for the remainder of the academic year. So again, harrowing times. They're very creative and good-natured about it all. Uh, but having said that, I'm glad that I'm here in Arizona with the vast and wide expanses of our beautiful state and the weather uh, that we have to look forward to in the springtime of the year. So, having said that, let's find our way to 
Paul's letter to the Galatians. And what better place to begin than in the beginning? And in chapter 1, we have our introduction. Paul says, in introducing himself, Paul, an apostle, not from human beings, nor through a human being, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, grace to you in the churches of Galatia. Galatia is a region. Today we'd locate that region in close proximity to Kudasai, which is where ancient Ephesus was located. And from the headquarters of the church of Ephesus, founded by Paul in Acts chapter 19, other churches grew over the course of time. Principally, for instance, the church of the Colossians, which receives a letter from Paul. In fact, two, the letter of Paul to the Colossians, and also the letter of Paul to Philemon, a member of the Colossian church. Colossae would be in the worldview of those churches that were founded by Paul in that specific region. So, it'd be rather like saying, uh, I, Paul, am addressing a letter to the churches of the Midwestern states of our great country. He says he's an apostle, not from human beings, nor through a human being, but rather through Jesus Christ and God the Father. His call to apostleship is well documented in the book of Acts. And I'll remember that story for you by reading from Acts chapter 9. It's important to set the scene. Of course, in Acts chapter 9, Paul, known as Saul, he has two names, Saul, his Hebrew name, Paul, the way that he is referred to in the Greek circles of his time. In chapter 9 of the book of Acts, Saul, verse 1, still breathing murderous threats against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest with some credential allowing him to gain access. That's like a meeting with the Pope. And asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, that is Syria, that if he should find any men or women who belong to the way, the way those who were following and believing that Jesus was Israel's promised Messiah, that he might bring them back to Jerusalem in chains. He's given that authority. The request is granted him. And the high priest, the Pope of the Jewish faith community, at that time, there's only one of them, and the high priest is replaced when the previous high priest dies, gave him those letters necessary so that he could root out any who followed Jesus, the one they called the Christos, the anointed one, if they were found in any of the synagogues in Damascus, which was a hub center where major trade routes came together. You needed to stop the expanding message of Christianity there, because if you failed, it would literally have ability to reach the edges of the Roman Empire, which was the edge of the world to those in the New Testament era. Now, you know the story on his journey as he was nearing Damascus. A light from the sky suddenly flashed around him. That would be in broad daylight, a blinding flash of some lightning-sorted event. And he, and he alone, fell to the ground, not off a horse, but simply was knocked down. 
And he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, in response, and we'll note in a moment, also blinded, he cried out, Who are you, sir? And the reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do, his commissioning. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, for they heard the voice, but could see no one. Now remember, they heard the voice of Paul. They heard one half of the conversation. Paul had been knocked down on the ground. He was clearly incapacitated. He was blinded, and he's engaged in a conversation with someone that is not present there, at least to their ability to recognize. They're confused. They're frightened. Saul got up from the ground, and when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. And for three days, he was unable to see. And he neither ate nor drank, which meant that as a man of prayer and of faith, he fasted and he waited for God to answer his prayer. Why has this happened to me? Now, there was a disciple in Damascus, verse 10, named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, I'm here. He responded, Get up and go to the street called Straight, and ask at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He is there praying. He's fasting. It's a response of faith. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him that he may regain his sight. Now, Ananias is not at all excited about this commission. Lord, he responds, I have heard from many sources about this man, what evil things he has done to your holy ones in Jerusalem, subjecting them to death. Saul stood by, guarding the cloaks of those who shed them so that they could participate in the public stoning, a death sentence of the first known Christian martyr, Acts chapter 7, a man, a deacon named Stephen. That was just the beginning of these kind of violent reprisals. But the Lord said to him, no, in verse 15, go, for this man is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before Gentiles, kings, and the Israelites. And I need to show him what he will have to suffer for my name. That's his commission. It's not given to him by a man, but rather by God through this vision. So Ananias went and entered the house, laying his hands on him. He said, Saul, my brother, the Lord has sent me, Jesus, who appeared to you on the way by which you came, that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. He got up and was baptized, and when he had eaten, he recovered his strength. And he stayed some days with the disciples in Damascus. And he began at once to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues, saying that he is the Son of God, proving that through careful re-examination of the Scriptures, which would be sourced from the Hebrew Bible of the time. There's no New Testament yet. All who heard him were astounded and said, 
Is not this the man who in Jerusalem ravaged those who called upon this name and came here expressly, was commissioned to come here expressly to take them back in chains to the chief priests? But Paul grew all the stronger and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus, proving that this is the Messiah, that is, that Jesus is the Messiah, and he would have used, as I mentioned earlier, the Hebrew Bible to make his case. Now, after a long time had passed, some Jews in Damascus conspired to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were keeping watch on the gates day and night so as to kill him in the gate complex in the midst of a throng of people pushing either their way out of the city or trying to enter the city. His disciples realized the danger of that sort of opportunity. So they took him one night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And in verse 26, we read, finally, when he arrived in Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. What we'll learn in the letter of Paul to the Galatian churches is that that journey to Jerusalem doesn't take place until after three years of prayerful consideration, teaching, and training that Paul underwent during a time in the deserts of Arabia. He fled to the east, and he stayed in the desert areas studying and preparing for this moment when he would come to Jerusalem and would be introduced to the principal players. And so we have the narrative of Acts chapter 9 informing the general framework of the call, commission, and subsequent arrival of Paul in Jerusalem, and then the backstory, the details that will be fleshed out now in Paul's letter to the Galatians. Remember, written from Ephesus, the year 53-54 A.D. So, coming back to Galatians chapter 1 now, with that background from the book of Acts, Paul says in verse 6, I am amazed that you all are so quickly forsaking the one who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, parenthetically, not that there is another, but there are some who are disturbing you and wish to pervert the gospel of Christ. Who are they? Well, they are members of a group from Judea, not officially commissioned by the church leaders there, those named Peter, John, and James, the first cousin of Jesus, but rather on their own desire, have arrived at the churches of Paul as Judaizers. They are members of a group that Paul has labeled the Circumcision Party. And they come into the churches after they've been founded by Paul, and Paul's moved on, insisting that to be fully committed to Jesus as a Jewish believer, if you are a male, you have to then subject yourself to the mark of circumcision, which is demanded of all Jewish males since the time of Abraham, Acts chapter 17. Paul will maintain this is nonsense. And we'll look in a moment at Acts chapter 15. There was an assemblage 
of church leaders, a Jerusalem council that was presided over by James, who is the acting bishop of the church in Judea, in Jerusalem at that time, that expressly conveyed the message that this was never to be a requirement. Could you voluntarily subject yourself to circumcision? Certainly you could. Was there efficacy in doing so? Not necessarily. But it was not something demanded generally of any Gentile male who came to faith in Christ. But these members of the circumcision party were quite convincing. And Paul's concerned about them, and he calls them those who are disturbing you and wishing with this disturbance to pervert the gospel of Christ. Now listen to what he says following in verses 8 and 9. But if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel other than the one that we preach to you, let that one be accursed. If you're going to be cursed, it means you're going to be sentenced to eternal damnation in hell. As we said before, and now I say again, if anyone preaches to you a gospel other than the one that you received, let that one, let that person be accursed. They can go to hell, Paul says, for all I care. And that is the fate of those who are bringing this message of the circumcision party. Now, Paul asks aloud, am I now currying favor with human beings trying to please men or God? Am I seeking to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a slave of Christ. And the message of salvation, suffering, death, burial, and resurrection, the freedom in Christ to live and move and breathe, because you're now filled with the Holy Spirit. So he says in verse 11, Now I want you to know, brothers, meaning members of the churches in Galatia, it's gender-inclusive, brothers and sisters, that the gospel preached by me is not of human origin. For as I showed you in Acts chapter 9, I did not receive it from a man, nor was I taught it, but it came through a direct revelation of Jesus Christ, that experience of Paul on the road to Damascus. For you heard of my former way of life in Jerusalem, as mentioned in Acts chapter 9. Remember Ananias and his fearful concern. How I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And, in the process, progressed in Jerusalem in my Judaism, beyond many of my contemporaries among my race. Since I was even more a zealot for my ancestral traditions than any other in my cohort. Paul was a rising star in Judaism at the time. Remember, he has the ability to access, speak to, and make requests from the high priest who obviously would know who Paul was and his credentials that would allow him to make such a request for letters of introduction. Now he goes on in verse 15 to say, But when God, who from my mother's womb had set me apart and called me through his grace, was pleased 
in direct revelation to reveal his son to me so that I might proclaim him to the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem, that is, immediately to those who were apostles before me. Remember, the word there in lowercase letters means to be commissioned or to be sent. And obviously, the apostles of Jesus had been sent with a message of salvation. And Paul himself now, through that revelation of Jesus, was also an apostle. He was sent with a message to the Gentiles. So, in verse 16, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem, that is, immediately to those who were apostles before me, but rather I went into Arabia and then returned to Damascus. Now, how long was he in Arabia? Where in Arabia? We don't know, but somewhere to the east of Damascus. And having returned then to Damascus, we learn then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to confer with Cephas, which is Peter, and remind and reminded and remained with him, sorry, for 15 days. So that's part of the back story, that after he had been threatened in Damascus with the possibility of assassination, his disciples lowered him in a basket over the wall at night. He fled into the deserts of Arabia and there spent three years in contemplation, prayer, teaching, and training, returned then to Damascus after three years and was directed by the Spirit to make his way down to Jerusalem for a brief two-week visit. Now, he says, I went up to Jerusalem, verse 18 of Galatians chapter 1, to confer with Cephas, Peter, and remain with him for 15 days, obviously sharing the storied history of the previous three and a half years of his life. He says, additionally, I did not see any of the other apostles, only James, the brother of the Lord. Again, not officially an apostle. James is the first cousin of Jesus. He's the author of the letter of James in the New Testament. The James of apostolic origin, the brother of John, is martyred in the opening verses of chapter 12 at the Edict of Herod. So that James of the 12 apostles is the first apostle to die a martyr's death. This James is a direct relative of Jesus, a family member of Jesus, and becomes what we would call the bishop of the Church of Judea, the central and most important church in the time period. Now, in verse 20, parenthetically, Paul says, As to what I am writing to you, behold, before God, I am not lying. That is the way this story plays itself out. And in verse 21, he says, Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was unknown personally to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only kept hearing that the one who once was persecuting us in Judea is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy in the region of Damascus. So they glorified God because of me. And again, he met with the principals 
who were in Judea at that time, Cephas, the apostle Peter, and James, at that point effectively serving as the bishop of that church, as the shepherd, as the overseer, as the one whose final decision ruled. Now, after 14 years, again, time passes. This is chapter 2, verse 1. I again went up to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas taking Titus along also. By this point in time, his missionary journey, the first of three, had been completed. And that missionary journey had been successful in that churches had been founded principally in the Galatian region, starting in Ephesus and then expanding to other locations. That's the subject of the historical record of that first missionary journey, Acts chapters 13 and 14, and then chapter 15. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 2, I went up in accord with a revelation, and I presented to them the gospel that I preach to the Gentiles, but privately to those of repute, those who have ecclesial authority to consider Paul's testimony and adjudicate accordingly, so that, he says, I might not be running or have run in vain. Moreover, not even Titus, who was with me, although he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised in Jerusalem, in the heart and center of the church in Judea. But because of the false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy on our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, that they might enslave us. To them, we did not submit even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might remain intact for you. But from those who were reputed to be important, what they once were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those of repute, principally Peter, and James made me add nothing. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, the Gentiles, just as Peter was entrusted with the gospel to those who were circumcised, to Jewish men and women of faith, for the one who worked in verse 8 in Peter, for an apostolate to the, un, to the circumcised, worked also in me for the Gentiles. And when they recognized the grace bestowed upon me, James and Cephas and John, that's our youngest of the twelve apostles who was in Jerusalem at that particular time, who were reputed to be pillars, gave me and Barnabas their right hands in partnership that we should go from now on to the Gentiles and they, Peter and John, to the circumcised. Only we were to be mindful of the poor, which is the very thing I was eager to do. How mindful was he of those impoverished in Judea, in the church of Jerusalem? Well, we may have a clue in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, Paul, writing to the church that he founded, says, about a collection that is taken up annually for famine relief for those suffering dramatic losses of food and livelihood 
in the Judean church of Jerusalem. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 1. Now, in regard to the collection for the holy ones, meaning those in Jerusalem, you all show, should do as I ordered the churches of Galatia. Again, that collection of churches will be those who will receive this letter, circular, let's imagine it, that will be read in all those particular locations. And what did he order the churches of Galatia to do? In verse 2, on the first day of the week, each of you should set aside and save whatever he can afford, so that collections will not be going on when I come, and when I arrive, I shall send those whom you have approved with letters of recommendation to take your gracious gift to Jerusalem. And if it seems fitting that I should go also, if it's efficacious and works out in my schedule, then they will go with me. He says, I shall come to you after I pass through Macedonia, for I'm going to pass through Macedonia. Perhaps I shall stay or even spend the winter with you so that you may send me on my way wherever I go. Now, he's planning a journey to Corinth, and from Corinth, he plans then to make his way eventually to Jerusalem. And before he arrives, he's already given the directive that the Galatian churches should support the Jerusalem church financially. So coming back to Galatians chapter 2, he reminds the churches of Galatia that those, in verse 9, who were reputed to be pillars, gave me and Barnabas their right hand in partnership, that we should go to the Gentiles, and that Peter and John and others of Jewish background should go to the circumcised. Only we were to be mindful of the poor, which is the very thing Paul says that I was eager to do. Now let's pause here and find our way back to the book of Acts, and let's remember what happened in Acts chapter 15 at that council of Jerusalem. It's important because, again, it sets the back story of the influence of the circumcision party. So, in Acts chapter 15, some, we read in verse 1, who had come down from Judea were instructing the brothers, that is, in the churches that Paul had founded, unless you are circumcised according to the Mosaic practice, you cannot be saved. Now, because there arose no little dissension and debate by Paul and Barnabas with them, it was decided that Paul, Barnabas, and some of the others should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and presbyters about this question. The chief of the presbyters, the leaders of that church, would have been James, the first cousin of Jesus. So they were sent on their journey by the church and passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, telling along the way of the conversion of the Gentiles. And that brought great joy to all the brothers and sisters. When they arrived in Jerusalem, verse 4, they were welcomed by the church as well as by the apostles and the presbyters, and they reported what God had done with them. Some, however, from the party of the Pharisees who had become believers, stood up and said, Irregardless, we think it is necessary to circumcise them, meaning the Gentiles, and therefore direct them to observe the entirety of the Mosaic law. Now, these Pharisees who stood up had become believers. They were followers of Jesus, accepted 
and acknowledged him as the promised Messiah. Well, the apostles and presbyters met together to see about this matter. After much debate had taken place, Peter got up and said, My brothers, you are well aware that from early days God made his choice among you that through my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And that took place in the home of a Roman centurion named Cornelius, who, at the preaching of Peter, accepted the message of salvation, was baptized, and was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, Peter goes on to say, God, who knows the heart, bore witness by granting them, these Gentiles, the household of Cornelius and others, the Holy Spirit, just as he did us. He made no distinction between us and them, for by faith he purified their hearts. Why then are you thinking of putting God to the test by placing on the shoulders of the disciples a yoke that neither our ancestors nor we have ever been able to bear? On the contrary, we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they are, meaning the Gentiles. Hearing this, the whole assembly fell silent. And then they listened while Paul and Barnabas described the signs and wonders God had worked among the Gentiles through them. Remember, Paul and Barnabas are Jewish men who have come to faith in Jesus as the promised Messiah of Israel. Therefore, they are like the Pharisees challenging the issue of circumcision, Jewish believers. Now, they finished their testimony. After they had fallen silent, James verse 13 of Acts chapter 15, responded. He is the presbyter. He is the overseer. He is the bishop. He is the final authority in this assemblage of men who have come together and will call the first council of the church in Jerusalem. He says, my brothers, listen to me. Simon, Peter, has described how God first concerned himself with acquiring from the Gentiles a people for his name. We were shocked, James recalls, when Peter entered the home of pagan Gentiles, preached the gospel to them at God's direction. He had received the commission in a dream, and the household of Cornelius had responded in grace, was baptized, and was filled with the Spirit. The words of the prophet, verse 15 of Acts chapter 15, agree with this, as it is written, After this I shall return and rebuild the fallen hut of David. From its ruins I will rebuild it and raise it up again, so the rest of men may seek out the Lord, even all the Gentiles on whom my name is invoked. So the prophets agree that this was something God had in mind, that the message of salvation would be something that even the Gentiles would respond to. This is what the Lord says, who accomplishes these things known from of old. So, in verse 19, James, presiding, says, It is my judgment, therefore, that we ought to stop troubling the Gentiles who turn to God. But tell them by letter, and the letter will be officially written and given to Paul and Barnabas, to avoid pollution from idols, to avoid unlawful marriage, believers should marry 
believers, and to avoid the meat of strangled animals, you strangle an animal so that you can collect its blood after its demise and then consume it to try to gain some sort of that animal's vitality. For Moses, he continues, for generations now, has had those who proclaim him in every town, as he has been read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Those three general prohibitions have been bound upon all persons of faith since the time of the Mosaic Covenant, right? So there's nothing new here. It's not a list of new restrictions. It's basically doubling down on what's always been the case, which means that there can be no demand made of Gentile converts to Christianity that they submit to circumcision in order to be considered officially members of the community. They can choose to be, but that is of their own accord. It is not to be an ecclesial edict. Well then, in verse 22, the apostles and presbyters, in agreement with the whole church, decided to choose representatives and to send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, official emissaries. The ones chosen were Judas, who was also called Barsabbas, and Silas, they were leaders among the brothers. And this is the letter delivered by them from the central authority in Jerusalem. The apostles and presbyters, your brothers, to the brothers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, of Gentile origins, greetings. Since we have heard, in verse 24, that some of our number who went out without any mandate from us have upset you with their teaching and that disturbed your peace of mind, we have with one accord decided to choose representatives and to send them to you, along with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, who have these chosen representatives dedicated their lives to the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we are sending Judas and Silas, who will also convey the same message by word of mouth. They'll read it aloud. It is the decision of the Holy Spirit and of us not to place on you any burden beyond these necessities, which have always been a burden placed upon any persons who are interested in living in accord with Jewish law, custom, and tradition. Number one, you abstain from meat sacrificed to idols. Number two, from blood, that is, from meat of strangled animals. And thirdly, from unlawful marriage. If you keep free from these, you will be doing what is right, and so farewell. And so they, the four of them, were sent on their journey. Upon their arrival in Antioch, they called the assembly together and delivered the letter. When the people read it, they were delighted with the exhortation. Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, they spoke in the name of the Lord, exhorted and strengthened the brothers with many other words. And after they had spent some time there, they were sent off with greetings of peace from the brothers to those who had commissioned them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and proclaiming with many others the word of the Lord. And this is that time period between the two first missionary journeys. The end of the first, the Jerusalem Council, before the beginning of the second, which opens in Acts chapter 15, verse 36. So now we control and remember Acts chapter 15. 
We know the details. We know who the principal players are. And so now I can return then to Galatians chapter 2. And remember, in Galatians chapter 2, we noted dutifully, dutifully in uh, verse 10 that the only new teaching that they received as a result of that edict was that they were to be, in verse 10, mindful of the poor, which is the very thing I, Paul says, was eager to do. And we saw evidence of that in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 and following. So, we then fast forward in this historical narration in Galatians 2 and verse 11. So, Barnabas and Saul slash Paul went back with Silas and Judas and they promulgated the letter. Time passes. How much? We don't know. But when Cephas, in verse 11, came to Antioch, which is in Syria, I opposed him to his face because at that particular time he was clearly wrong. For until some people came from James, that means from the church in Jerusalem, while Peter was among us, he used to eat with the Gentiles, sharing table fellowship, eating the same fare presented to all. But when they came from the central church, he began to draw back and separated himself because he was afraid of the circumcised or the circumcision party. I mean, Peter was circumcised, so he wasn't afraid of someone simply because he was circumcised, but he was afraid of these emissaries, self-appointed, from the circumcision party, these super Jews and their message that every male needed to be circumcised. The rest of the Jews also acted hypocritically along with him, with the result that even Barnabas, who was Jewish obviously as well, was carried away by their hypocrisy. They, they, they were caught up in the rule and regulation that had never been laid upon the Gentiles. Now, when I saw that they were not on the right road in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, I said to Peter in front of everyone, if you, though a Jew, are living like a Gentile, and you were up until yesterday. That's the argument he's making. I mean, we, we sat around table and we've eaten together as brothers in Christ. I said, if you, though a Jew, are living like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? And again, I remind you of Acts chapter 15, the testimony that he had given in a public tribunal. And again, it's quite remarkable that he would say these words in verse 10 of Acts chapter 15. Why then are you putting God to the test by placing on the shoulders of the disciples, meaning Gentiles who have come to faith in Christ, a yoke, a law so heavy that neither our ancestors nor we have ever been able to bear. And yet, he's influenced, that is even Peter, by the religiosity, the hypocritical religiosity of these members of the circumcision party. And Paul will have none of this. Again, Galatians chapter 2, verse 11, I opposed him to his face because he clearly was wrong. 
And I said to him at the end of verse 14, how can you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? So we, Paul continues, who are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles, who know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. It's a general principle of Jewish theological reflection, and that is that the law is too onerous. It's too big. It, it can't be born. It's a yoke that will crush. Remember, Jesus said, come to me, all of you who are weary, and I will give you rest because my yoke is easy and therefore my burden is light. A reference to a yoke in Judaism is a reference to a law that you wear like a yoke if you're equally yoked to an animal and you are in like and kind similar to that animal. You can work purposefully in the field with ease of effort. Whenever we read about the yoke, it's something in Judaism's history that has crushed people because the law always expands. The 10 words become the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And by the time of Jesus, there was a Talmud which would stretch to 21 volumes in length. Laws of minutia unimaginable. And Paul says, we've figured all of that out. That, that that was only disciplinary. It was only to teach and train us up so that we can know our full freedom in Christ. So coming back to Galatians chapter 2 and verse 17, but if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves are found to be sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? Of course not. But if I am building up again those things that I tore down, then I show myself to be a transgressor. I would show myself to be a hypocrite. I'm not going to do that. For through the law, I died to the law that I might live for God. I have been crucified, Paul says, with Christ. Yet I live no longer I, but Christ lives in me, the Spirit. Insofar as I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who has loved me and given himself up for me. I do not, I will not, I cannot nullify the grace of God. For if justification comes through the law, if, if we can get right with God by fulfilling and following every mandate, every dictate of the law, then Christ died for nothing, right? And we're all lost. Now, that's the beginning of the letter of Paul to Galatians. There are six chapters, and next week we'll look at chapters 3 and 4, probably get into chapter 5 if time allows. But again, remember, the time allotted me is just 50 minutes. So I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to this lecture. If you like it, share it and get others on board. We'll be in Galatians next week and probably the week after that. You can listen whenever you wish, or at your regularly scheduled Bible class time. I do look forward to greeting you again someday, hopefully on Tuesdays in May. And uh, given some time sorting all this out, we'll sort out 
uh, registration possibilities and payment possibilities so that your Bible teacher can continue to pay some of the bills that are accruing in all of our lives. But that's for another time. And for now, that's all the time I have to do. Let's close with a word of prayer and we will be on our way. Father, we thank you for the freedom we have in Christ. And we pray that that freedom can be expressed in heartfelt, Holy Spirit-inspired joy in the way we speak of you, in the way that we speak to you, and in the way we gather when available an opportunity presents itself so that we can in public worship of you. Until that time, bless, protect, and keep us safe. In Jesus' name we pray. And until I see you again, never forget what a great student you are.